hello and welcome to this latest Hollowell Conversations podcast. Um, in this episode, we're going to be looking at what seems almost to be an intractable problem here in Northern Ireland, and that's the continuing presence of paramilitaries in our society. Um, uh, this, I think, it is fair to say, is not what we expected when the majority of people voted for the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago, a decision that was itself supported by paramilitary groups. So to talk about this today, I am joined, as usual, by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm grand, Gerard. Thank you. Brilliant. So, uh, Paul, this is a, a tricky enough conversation. Do you want to help set the scene for us? Yeah, I'll try, Gerard. Um, yeah, despite the Good Friday Agreement, as you mentioned, and the disarmament of the provisional IRA and the larger loyalist paramilitary forces, we still have paramilitaries in our society, and they are exerting coercive control over many communities. Some of these groups are particularly dangerous and active at present. Back in 2015, the Fresh Start Agreement identified the need to end paramilitarism once and for all. To support this, the Independent Reporting Commission was established uh, involving through the leadership uh, Monica McWilliams, a very well-known individual here in our society. Now, tackling paramilitary criminality is handled jointly by the PSNI, Angarda Shikana, HMRC, the National Crime Agency, and the Security Services. All of those have got a role in tackling uh, the criminality and, uh, in some cases, the paramilitary group's uh, identity. Now, active groups include dissident Republicans, and that's not just the new IRA, and also various loyalist groups, in particular splinter brigades of the Ulster Defence Association. Now, some of these groups are heavily involved in the sale of drugs or operating protection rackets to facilitate drug selling operations. As a result, there is a close cooperation between some of those paramilitary groups and some drug-orientated organised criminal gangs. Now, the Independent Reporting Commission pointed to how the Northern Ireland Protocol sparked a surge in activity from some loyalist paramilitary groups including the recruitment of children, to act on behalf of those groups in street disturbances. Now, recently, we've had the raising of the security threat level from substantial to severe, which means that the security forces are warning that further paramilitary attacks are highly likely. OK, so given that things are deemed to be highly likely, Paul, what's the scale of paramilitary activity at the moment? Now, I think we need to put this in context, Gerard. Things are very much better than they were during the Troubles, obviously. But they are not perfect. Now, in the year ending the 31st of May, there was one security-related death, seven bombings, 33 shootings, and 32 casualties of paramilitary assaults. Now, this was an increase in the previous year, though the trend has been down since the French start agreement was agreed. Okay, so we have to recognise that it's still not a normal society here, though maybe reflect on the fact that gang violence, Paul, is endemic in many places around the world, including... UK and Ireland, we've seen a, a lot of examples of it in Ireland recently. Um, okay, so thanks Paul for setting the scene. And we're going to be joined by two experts. Um, who is it that we're going to hear from today? Yeah, we'll, we'll hear a bit later from Professor Dominic Bryan, who was joint chair of the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture and Tradition, which considered the, the linkage between the use of flags and the exercise of control by paramilitaries. First, though, we listened to Peter Sheridan, who is Chief Executive of Cooperation Ireland, which describes itself as a peace and reconciliation charity and is centrally involved in efforts to end the role and influence of paramilitaries. Peter, uh, we should add, it was a senior officer in both the PSNI and the RUC. Now, uh, Peter here considers how paramilitaries should be tackled, making a couple of particularly interesting points, I thought. Uh, we should, he suggests, talk less about paramilitaries and more about, some of them at least, as organised criminal gangs. 
And faced with criticism of the policing of those groups, he suggests there should be more focus on the role of the policing board. Okay, so let's listen to Peter. I mean, Peter, what, what's your assessment of where we are now? Um, so I, I think we probably have been treading water for a period of time around this, um, and we don't seem to have made progress. The fact that particularly loyalist paramilitaries are still recruiting um, doesn't suggest to be much um, about transition. You know, if you're going to transition, then the question is why you're recruiting. And and then those splinter groups or smaller groups around republicanism that's you know feel that Sinn Fein sold them out and are still going to um, continue to um, you know be sporadic in their attacks. They're never going to be able to sustain a campaign. So I think we get kind of caught in a bit of a loop at the minute. Um, and this and the politics of the place doesn't help in that. There's no leadership from that perspective. Uh, so it feels that we're treading water at the minute. I mean, there's a perception that we've been bribing paramilitary groups to stop being violent and that that process isn't working anymore because they've returned to levels of activity. I mean, what, what your, what's your feeling about that? I don't think it was ever a case of bribing them. I, mean, I think there's an inevitability about this place once, you know, the negotiations happen between the British government and the Republican movement at the time, and then leading to the all party talks with loyalism. And so, you, you know, that was kind of unusual in itself that you were bringing people into a room who were in illegal paramilitary organizations. But I think all of us kind of recognized at that time that to be um, successful, you had to be inclusive. And, and, and that's why we were successful in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and because of that inclusivity. But I don't think any of us expected that 25 years on beyond those ceasefires, um, the standing down of paramilitary organisations, that somehow the, the UDA, UVF would still be roaming around. Um, I think there was a sense that there would always be Republicans who didn't buy into the Sinn Féin strategy and they were going to try and sustain a, a campaign they haven't been successful. So I don't think it was bribing right away. I think it was all of us had to swallow hard as part of the same as letting prisoners out, um, you know, um, they, on the new legislation that the most people do is two years in jail. So there's a lot of things people had to swallow hard. And that was one was recognizing that um, if we were going to move this on, we had to engage with these people. Um, and there were some of them who were genuine around it and, and who did want to move it on. But um, as I said, some of them have morphed into criminality under the cloak, if you like, of, of paramilitarism, but it is about criminality. How, how do we move ourselves away from the loop in which we have got some people associated with loyalist paramilitaries receiving public funding, yet are not completely dissociated from paramilitary activity? Yeah, so a number of things in that about. 12 years ago, I'd done a paper at the time about language, you know, and even the fact that you and I are talking 25 years beyond the Good Friday Agreement about paramilitarism. And I said, we, we de you know, we need a process that loses the language of this stuff that even from a media perspective, this isn't about, um, you know, not being transparent, but you know, editors of newspapers have no issue about writing articles or about the past, so we include the IRA or the UVF, but even up to this day, we almost have created a permanent language in the lexicon about paramilitarism to the extent that when I 
uh, wrote to the Secretary of State at the time about changing the language away from giving them an identity, a group identity, um, that he acknowledged it, wrote back and said that they're going to change to um, residual terrorists. And it kind of lost what I was trying to say. We, you know, I, I didn't want to differentiate them or create a group. And I think we have created groups, Paul. We've, we've continued to sustain groups by continuing. So I think there's something about what stage do we stop calling the paramilitary? What stage are these, the people who are involved in drug dealing and kneecapping and racketeering, um, diff any different than the those same crime groups in Liverpool or Manchester or Dublin or Cork? Yet we have created a separate identity for them, and that cont it continues to give them kudos. So that's the first thing. The second thing I have, I think we have to be ruthless about this issue of recruitment. If the um, information, the police intelligence, um, or community intelligence, is that people are still recruiting, then I have to be. I think we have to be ruthless about whether people we continue to engage with people on that basis. They've had twenty five years to stop it. I had a conversation with a number of loyalist paramilitaries recently about it, and I asked them, why are they still recruiting? And they said, well, if we didn't, they would be joining other organizations. And I asked them, so what do you mean, like the Boy Scouts or something? And, you know, and tell me what you, when, when you, when, they, when you recruit them into your organization, for what purpose? What are they doing? Is it social issues that they're dealing with? And of course, none of that is true. In it. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know um, today, but I'm sure, the police will know, you know, certainly in my time, the the um, entry fee every month was £10, you know, once you signed up, so you had to pay them £10. That's a considerable amount of money going into an organisation that's maybe 12,000 people in it, still to this day, and, and you know, collecting £10 a month off everybody. So I think we have to be ruthless, Paul, about this issue of recruitment. I do think there is room for a formal engagement process but that has strict rules and boundaries around it. People have to sign up to the ministerial uh, pledge of office. Um, now, have they always abide by it up in Stormont? Um, probably not, and or at least they've run along the edges of it. But I do think there's merit in in future for funding organisations or people who are going to be funded that that they sign up to non-violence, uh, and and if there's then any sense of a breach of that at least you have a contract that that you can call a halt to. and i think we have we have to be ruthless about calling a halt to those um those contracts where people start to breach them there has to be some consequence around this if we're going to move towards a normalized society surely we also have to deal with the paramilitary insignia the the flags the graffiti and yet that becomes actually while significant because it shows demarcation lines within the structures of our geography it it also shows a significant grip that certain groups have even if we're calling them organized crime gangs so how do we deal with that given that it's incredibly difficult for any public body including the psni to take down flags to stop graffiti showing demarcation lines so there, there are two parts that first of all let me go, go to the wider part of it i think you know, when I, what I saw around Easter, up around Craigan, and what I see around, you know, parts of East Belfast and that, there's first something about the structural change that needs to happen in society. Issues of poverty, disadvantage, discrimination, um, barriers uh, to opportunities for young people in those areas. And it's why I said, you know, 
we're treading water because the executive is not in place. You know, if, if this was, and we managed to make this a prosperous society, and I don't mean prosperous for the few, I mean prosperous for everybody, and that doesn't mean to have you know, the, the, the resources that Rory McElroy has to be prosperous, but I mean those young people up in Craigan who are throwing petrol bombs around Easter time, having the opportunity to buy their own car, cut their own grass, book a holiday, you know, those, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, huge money, whereas they don't have, and they see it very difficult or the lack of opportunity to get to that place. And some people might break out of it, but we have not fixed that structure stuff. Now, if we were able to deal with those wider structure of society, um, transform communities where, where the people are recruiting young people from, and people have a different opportunity in it, then I think you start to make the rest of the stuff irrelevant. That's the first point in it. So it's it's something about, you know, I talked to Joe Kennedy when he was over and, you know, the American president talked about 6.4 billion, billion of investment, he was effectively saying, if you can get your act together. And, I, and talking to Joe Kennedy, I said, but it has to be in the right areas. You know, what happened after the Belfast Good Friday Agreement um, they, that when we needed investment and 6,000 jobs into Derry or West Belfast or into um, North Belfast, it didn't happen. The economic collapse happened around the world and mothers and fathers started to lose their jobs instead of young people getting their jobs. We have never recovered that. And that, what people call the peace dividend, never happened in those communities that were affected most by it. And in fact, I would argue that probably things are worse for them in those communities. So that's the first. It has to be a determined effort of of um, putting some balance in around those issues of poverty and discrimination in, in communities. So we said to Joe Kennedy, great, bring in the 6.4 billion investment and job, but they have to be in the right places. You know, they, 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 I'm not saying there's anything having a, wrong with having a factory up the Malone Road, but well, you know what I mean by it, that they have to be targeted into the right place. And we have to um, attract those young people in those people. That's what, first of all, starts to change and make this stuff irrelevant. Secondly, then, in that formal uh, engagement process that the IRC talk about it, I think there's merit in that. I, have, I, you know, I can fully understand why some of these paramilitary organisations need to move to um, uh, an old boys club. You know, I get all that and have keep their symbols and their past, but but it has to be on the basis of non-violence, you know, no recruitment, and and if they're if they're not prepared to do that, there has to be a cut off ball when this is about law enforcement. And, and if you're not willing to step into the opportunities provided with you, well, then and it's the other parts of society have to deal with it. But we also, I think, have a problem, at least the, the sense of a problem by some people at the uh, policing operations. And we, I, I've uh, just before this interview, I've had a, a, a press statement from a, a law firm that's complaining about heavy-handed policing of someone. Uh, and there is a sense that this is counterproductive, that it increases tensions with certain communities and undermines community trust in the PSNI. I mean, how do you feel that policing deals with these issues of sensitivity? Well, so again, I think you know the police are generally the front face of government around it, and because government isn't working, I think that always impacts on policing. And but you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I have argued um, more recently around the Armour Road, the bookie shop. If you remember the two police officers that came and gazed in it, that 
what was wrong at that time was that both Sinn Féin and every other political party was out, you know, making judgments around it at the time. And even the chief constable himself came out. Now, we put together structures of accountability to stop that, which was the policing board, the police ombudsman. Why people didn't say, whether it was Michelle O'Neill or, or Arlene Foster, anybody else didn't say, look, we have accountability structures. Let those bodies deal with these matters. And, and I think there's a lot of confidence in, in those accountability structures. But, you know, our politicians particularly tend to, you know, get stuck right in before they even have had the, those organisations have had a chance to do their job in the policing board. I think the policing board needs to be more vocal around this stuff and take more um, public responsibility around these things and start to to tell politicians and that to back off them. I mean, the whole idea of having politicians in the policing board was for that very reason, that they could be informed about what's happening. So that that is an amateur. And of course, then, so if there's... Um, wrongdoing or if there's um as you to call it heavy handed then there are bodies there that should be allowed to get on with it and deal with it and and you know it's very easy when you hear one side of the story to make judgments as happened at that armor road thing and and then when the ombudsman does their work and discover the police officer from limerick he hadn't a clue anything about the armor it was a completely different picture in it but it's that fleet-footed lies followed by leaden-footed truth you know but we haven't matured enough to allow those organ or organizations and we put in place for those very reasons that you're talking about to to take the lead in those. Um, so you, you feel that the policing board should be more assertive in its role? Yeah, well, so one of the worries I have today, Paul, is if I asked Mr. Avers says in the street, who's the chair of the policing board? Would they know who's the vice chair of the policing board? Would they know who the police ombudsman is? You know, and I, I reflect back to, you know, would people have known in New Low Loan's time who was the police ombudsman? I think so. Did police, but people know that Desmond Ray and Dennis Bradley were the police? I think so. And I, so I think there is a, now part of a normal society, maybe they aren't as visible, but we're not quite there yet. And what I do want to see is those organize or those bodies that we put together, the Parades Commission, to, to manage some of these issues somehow fading into the background you know and, and i do think that even from a political perspective like when i was in in the police you had senior people on the policing board from all the political parties you know alex atwood arlene foster ian paisley sammy wilson you know and i think of the of the level of people um i think Sinn Féin are the probably the only people today who have put people on the board who are particularly well known in it and so i do think that there's something about re-establishing the importance and the independence of those organizations to let them do their job and take the lead in it right so thanks to peter for that interview uh, but paul you mentioned in the interview with peter there are criticisms of the policing of paramilitaries by which we mean the, the treatment of people suspected or alleged they have links with paramilitary groups yeah and and this has really hit the headlines in the last few days uh, the Madden and Finnegan law firm uh, has put out a particularly strong statement criticising the PSNI for their treatment of a client of the firm, alleging that her detention was conducted in a very public way, damaging her reputation with a public statement that appeared to link her to a paramilitary group. The firm says it believes the arrest was connected to the release on bail of a much older half-brother. Now, the firm stated, and I quote here, that to arrest a woman with no criminal record from her place of work where she is a well-respected healthcare professional 
wholly unconnected to criminality of any kind, and to then denigrate her good name in the most egregious way is to be condemned and deplored. That is a, a strong statement. And does that have any wider significance? Yeah, I think it does, because there have been suggestions previously that heavy-handed policing, based sometimes on what is claimed to be flawed intelligence, has undermined confidence in the PSNI and assisted paramilitary groups to assert control and influence over communities. Now, another way in which paramilitary groups exercise that coercive control is through the erection of flags, which some people say is more evident this year than in recent years. Now, Dominic Bryan uh, chaired, or co-chaired, I should say, the commission looking at the flags and identity. And, and here he explains this in more detail. I mean, I think in terms of um, obtaining a form of legitimacy that the, the use of flags and other ways of demarcating space has for some time been the way one of the ways that the, the paramilitaries the paramilitaries work i think there's no doubt about it and interestingly we did surveys um some years ago now and asked people who they thought put flags up and whether it be union flags or tricolours uh, more than 50% of the population think flags are put up by paramilitaries. Now, whether that's right or wrong, not the truth of the statement that matters, but the fact that people think it tells you that there is a, a, a real role, a relationship between the way, um, the way that flags and other uh, memorials and things are used and uh, coercive control of paramilitaries is, is related. Yeah, I was going to say that because, in a sense, the significance is that element of coercive control and whether it intimidates people within their communities. Yes, it's not. And, and, and there's decent evidence. In fact, some of the recent evidence from the Lord Island Life and Time Survey suggests the sense of intimidation has gone up to some of its highest levels for some time. Um, it's an interesting bit of the survey because I'm not quite sure, having been a watcher of this for 25 years or so I um, can't quite put my finger on why that might be at the moment but there is no doubt that the act that activity um, acts to give a sense of control it's an activity that is undertaken almost always by groups of men quite well organized there's a quite a gendered aspect to all of this as well and if you ask people, lots of people, if they if they like the flags, I mean, some people object more than others. But the idea that you would go and take down the flags that have been put up um, uh, is something that most people would say, no, I'd never go and do that. And I was and that tells you something. Yeah. And I was speaking to one of the MLA officers uh, yesterday who was saying that they'd had more complaints about the erection of flags this year than they had ever in the past. So clearly this is not an issue that's going away. No, and, and I, I suppose I share a sense of guilt over that since I've been involved in researching it. Um, I mean, I did a project in the Nortis. Uh, I actually counted all the flags on all the main roads in Northern Ireland for four years at three different different time periods to try and map whether the then there was there still is officially a flags protocol, which is the official policy of the police and others. Um, we evaluated it then to see if it was if that policy was successful um, and our evaluation said it had no impact whatsoever. And and there have been attempts to change that ever since, including 
the Flags Identity, Culture and Tradition Commission, which I co-chaired, which has also, unfortunately, in many ways, gone onto a shelf and not been worked on at all. So, so there's been very little, I think, development on this. And despite the fact that I'd be told there's a protocol here and a protocol there, um, we still have flags on lampposts in quite a few, lot of areas for quite a lot of the year. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that report and your frustration that it's basically gone nowhere. But I mean, just to touch on that point about the protocol, in fact, the the police have told people who are thinking about taking down flags that they might be charged with public order offences yeah. if they did so. So it's actually the police legitimising the actions of paramilitaries. That, that, well, well, I think when we get to that point, Paul, we're at the heart of the issue, and that is that there is a status quo, there's a normative position, there are some technicalities here, which means it's not the police directly who are supposed to do it. But yes, that those things can appear any, anywhere. And you, when you bring people here, when you bring visitors and show them the amount of paramilitary stuff that appears on our streets, and they all say, well, do the police not want to take it away? Pe people are baffled by that. Now, now I, 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 I'm not, I mean, the, the, it's important that we are involved in processes of a transition. So, I, you know, I do think the, the, the embeddedness of paramilitaries groups in our communities, in our society is a complicated one and must be dealt with with, with, with care. That said, we never got our heads round um, ways of, dealing with that form of coercive control so do we actually just have to be pragmatic as they might say and say well okay the flags are just there and they're going to be there and we can't do anything about it i don't think that's good enough i don't think it's fair on people we are being pragmatic i would say people are not only pragmatic i'd say they're patient for a lot of time um uh, but it is an underlying problem in our society that we have communities that are very bounded. We want to take the walls down. That's going to be particularly different, difficult. But I do think we could do more to, to break down some of the boundaries marked by symbols um, uh, in, in that way. We do know that it has an economic impact on areas. That can be evidenced quite well. And we do know that 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 the, the ability to put flags up allows, you know, groups of men who are broadly, you could call them vigilantes, you could call them organized crime groups, um, um, to maintain a form of control in some areas. Now, here's a really strange thing. There are lots of people, or quite a few people in some areas who feel their areas safe because of that. So it's... <laughs> It's complicated because paramilitaries have supporters, paramilitaries have groups of people in areas who feel safe because they're being looked after. All right. So the embeddedness, the well, they feel like they're being looked after by these groups. So that embeddedness in a local community or in a local group is a complicated thing and can't be simply pulled apart. But for me, that is not a status quo that we can afford to live with. And another way of putting that, and status quo is a, a, a good point of reference here, 
is that it is a symbol of resistance to change. It is saying this is our community that dominates this area, and we do not want that to change. We do not want incomers from whatever background here. I think that's absolutely right, Paul, and I'll go further than that. Um, so, for instance, I can think of quite a number of areas where I would say the marking of those areas using paramilitary flags is more an act of resistance to gentrification than it is to aimed at the other community or, or you know, Catholics or Protestants, whichever way you want to put it. I can think of a number of areas in Belfast when I think it's a resistance to gentrification in, 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 in disadvantaged areas that have really struggled. But the, there's a, there's a, there is a deep class and economic structure to this, as well as the what we might call the more polarised sectarian one that it, it looks like. And just to draw out one of the points you mentioned there, Dom, which is about the economic impact, because what really I think you're saying is that investors are not going to invest heavily in an area that is perceived to be subject to co a coercive control by a paramilitary group because of the flags. Yes. I, I mean, you could argue a number of areas um, where the visit of tourism, because some of these things exist, is um, advantageous. But that definitely a minority of areas. Quite interestingly, for the years that I was involved in that project, the two councils that invited me to speak mo most often were, they were different councils at the time, but they were up in Coleraine and they were in, in Bangor. And, and both of those areas, for example, were predominantly Protestant areas, all right? But both needed tourism. And both of those councils were worried because those marked 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 areas might discourage tourism, which was the lifeblood of the area. I mean, that's just one obvious example. Now you chair the FICT. Mm -hmm. How frustrating is it for you that that report, as you say, has gathered dust and I would say just gone nowhere? Well, it, it, I mean, it was a frustrating thing to go through in the first place because it took a long time. The way it was set up, I, 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 I made some good friends and had some nice colleagues from all the political parties, and we achieved quite a lot. I mean, despite the disparaging remarks we got, if you go through the fixed report, there's a lot of agreed material between five political parties there that could start to be implemented. Um, uh, but it was frustrating getting there, but even more frustrating is having done all of that work and indeed spent the money on the commission it's broadly it, when we had a government it sat there without really being pushed through um, and since we haven't had a government of course it's absolutely nowhere now i have groups talking about it i mean as one example the chapter on bonfires was completely agreed by all five political parties and that 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 that, that i think is quite a quite a good Good thing, and I would suggest anybody trying to look at the issue around bonfires takes a look at that chapter, all right, to see where to take things forward. But it, but it's enormously frustrating that we're still at that point. It's enormously frustrating that agencies of the state seem seem unable to, when asked by people, you know, to to be very blunt. There is a piece of legislation which says you can't put a symbol or sign on top of, on a lamppost. I mean, it's it's just the law. Um, 
And, but let's, but and, let's, and let's, be, let's be clear about this, Dom. You say public agencies. You mean the Department of Infrastructure, don't you? I mean the Department of Infrastructure. The Road Service have decided that. And let, let's try and be as sympathetic as we can to them. Um, you know, engaging in in trying to take flags down would be a big job. It would be a big job because you couldn't just do it in one place. If you started doing it arbitrarily in one place, um, you would find yourself with difficulties. So it's quite a big policy thing to take on. If they do take it on, they need the support of the police. Now, the police would, would legally be bound to help the Department of Infrastructure if they started doing that. But I think what you also need is broad political support that that should take place. You need agreement on how that should take place. And that's what we attempted to do in the commission. We need people saying, do you know what? Paramilitary flags are going to be taken down. All right. And flags that stay up longer than a certain number of days will be taken down. All right. If you want to if you want to commemorate or remember, then we'll produce a piece of legislation which will allow you to put flags on lampposts as we do with election posters for periods of time during the year. Um, but outside that time, you can't use those lampposts. That would be the broad, that would be the broad idea. But we need, we need political backing to do that. And, and here's an irony to all of that. I think one of the problems with the way people use flags now is they make them less sacred. They make them less important. They use them in a very frivolous way. They get dirty and tatty. They're up all year round. So when, when, when an event comes along where you want to put the flag up, nobody really notices. Do you know what? Because it's up there six months to a year anyway. So I, I actually think if we could move to a space where they were put up, it would still be a bit of territory marking. But I sort of think if people want to put flags up for, say, two weeks at the beginning of July, now... I'd never get any agreement, I think, to that shorter period. But anyhow, but for a period in July, then then let's do it. But this idea that you can, you know, that there is a marching season, a lot of this has been invented in recent years, by the way, um, you know, that last three months and that flags should go up all of that period of time is, is really at heart territory marking. And it's as interestingly based on the fact that you could now get hold of lots of cheap flags just to be uh, you, the the. The cheap manufacture of flags in the Far East is one of the ways in which this has started to take place. In, you know, in decades earlier, flags were expensive to buy. And when you bought them and used them, you used them very carefully because you'd want to use them next year. So you put it up on the 12th or on your orange hall for a time and then you take it down. It's actually the cheap manufacture of the flags that has made what now takes place possible and also why they can't be bothered to take them down because the flags can't be used again once they've been used once. Thanks to Dominic um, and to Peter for some excellent contributions. Uh, so for myself, it feels as if this gives us more to think about rather than providing a solution. Um, and we recall that independent reporting commission suggesting further negotiations with paramilitary groups to move us forward and it's clearly something that many people will find uncomfortable but we still have to we still have to have some way to go and we still have some way to go when it comes to eradicating the impact of the troubles okay so that's it for this latest episode of the hollywell trust conversation project or uh, 
podcast, I should say. Thanks as ever to the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council for sponsoring the podcast. And you can catch up with all previous episodes on the Hollywell Trust website. And we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you.